The art of economics consists in looking not merely at immediate, but at the long, longer effects of any act or policy. It consists in tracing the consequences of that policy, not merely for one group, but for all groups. Welcome to Keith Knight. Don't tread on anyone. Today we'll be discussing The Elephant in the Brain by Robin Hansen. We have Mr. Hansen with us. He is an associate professor of economics at George Mason University and a research associate at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. Helping me out is Mr. Jeremy Kaufman, the founder of Library.TV. Mr. Hansen, thank you so much for your time. Great to be here. What is the thesis of The Elephant in the Brain? I am a professor of economics and have been for a long time. And this is about the one mistake I think we social scientists most make. And that is to take people at their word for why they do things. Uh, we think we're skeptical, at least we economists do. We think we are not taking people as words. We think we are assuming that they are much more selfish than they actually are, but we are actually pretty gullible. So, uh, Whenever we study something like school or medicine or politics or in conversation, ordinary parts of life, we immediately go to the usual explanation most people give us about that area of life. So if it's school, uh, they say, well, it's about learning the material. If it's about medicine, it's about getting well. If it's about politics, it's about making our society work better, etc. So in each of these areas, we tend to take people at the word for what's going on, what the key purpose of the activity is. And then we often struggle and puzzle over many particular details and patterns that don't make that much sense. And we scratch our heads. And the claim of the book is a lot of these puzzles will be understandable if you'll just go back to basics and say, maybe it's not about what people say it's about. <laughs> maybe it's about something much more basic and selfish and less pretty looking than what people like to pretend. Sure. Uh, now, uh, very often in uh, philosophy, I will come across the idea of, I don't care what someone's motives are. I care about the results of their actions. Why uh, does it matter or why is it important to find out people's true motives? Well, again, you'll be puzzled by their ineffectiveness at achieving the ends you've attributed to them if you misunderstand their ends. <laughs> you may say, why doesn't school teach more things? Why don't we learn more at school? Why are we paying so much for school? Uh, why are all these poor people not getting a better deal at school, uh, etc.? And if you've made an assumption about what school's for, you may continue to be puzzled and struggle with some pretty basic features of the world. Now, uh, you say that uh, in one word, the elephant is selfishness. Now, Nothing generally wrong with someone peacefully engaging in their self-interest. However, do you think there are ways that we could sort of say we recognize this self-selfishness is inherent in humanity? Are there any ways of harnessing that and turning it in such a way to benefit others? Well, of course, we do harness our selfishness, and we do use it to benefit not only ourselves but other people. Nevertheless, we all live in terror of being accused of selfishness. So humans evolved with social norms, and that's the key distinguishing feature of humans. We have weapons and language, and that allows us to point at somebody and said, they broke a rule. <laughs> and the norm is, uh, if you see someone breaking a rule, you're supposed to say, ooh, hey, they broke the rule. 
And if you are accused of a rule violation, you're supposed to defend yourself and say, oh, no, not me. I wouldn't do that. And a lot rides on that in the human ancestral world and in still today, whether or not you can be successfully accused of violating a rule. And the rules may not actually be functional or useful in the world. That matters less than whether you broke the rules. So we are, in some sense, your conscious mind, which you like to think of as the president or king of your mind, running the show and deciding what you do, is actually the press secretary. Its main job is to track what you do all the time and come up with good stories to explain how what you've been doing do not break rules. Now, I have noticed that uh, sometimes I will lie to myself. The biggest one is, I don't have to write that down, I'll remember it. And then I catch myself engaging in this self-deception all the time. You have a chapter dedicated to this. Uh, why do people engage in self-deception? Well, I just told you, I said, your job is not to know the truth of what you do. <laughs> That's not your conscious mind's job. Your job is to be the press secretary who doesn't actually know what's going on, but spins a good story. That's your job. So that's why you don't know what you actually do, because that's not your job. Your job is to make up a good story about why what you've been doing could be seen as a reasonable thing to do that doesn't break the rules. How, how did you find out? Struggling as a social scientist to make <laughs> sense of a whole bunch of weird things that people do. <laughs> so I, like anyone else, made all the usual assumptions at the beginning of my career, as most do most economists and the social scientists. And then I banged my head against a bunch of puzzling things, the first area of which was medicine. I got a postdoc straight out of graduate school at University of California at Berkeley. And it was a multidisciplinary postdoc where I interacted with many other uh, specialists and we sort of confronted many of the sort of basic empirical features of the world of medicine and healthcare, most of which just don't make much sense from the usual point of view. It's a strange, puzzling world if you've been trained, as most of us have, to say, well, medicine is about the fact that you could get sick and there are these experts who are expensive who can help you get well. And all it's all about these experts and them figuring out how to get you well and figuring out how to pay for it and how to judge their quality so that we can make sure you trust the right experts. And that that's the usual story about medicine. And of course, it a priori made sense. We do sometimes get sick. It does feel like we want to get well. So why wouldn't we pay people to help us get well? Nevertheless, there are a number of things that just don't make much sense from that point of view. And the, the probably the largest one is the fact there's almost no correlation between health and medicine. The people who consume more medicine are not healthier, not only in the aggregate when we average over countries and, and counties and hospital areas, but also when we do randomized experiments and give some people lower price of medicine, which makes them consume more, and yet they are not healthier. Interesting. Um, you, you say in the book, we are very often not aware of our real reasons for most of our behaviors. Uh, how can we determine what our real motives are? So we're acting as social scientists and our recommendation is that you not pay particular attention to yourself. <laughs> you just look at the average of the world and say, what happens on average in the world? What motives would make sense on average to explain the average behavior you see from other people? And then your last step should probably be to assume that you're pretty much like everybody else and that you can find a strong reason to think otherwise. Don't focus on yourself. Certainly don't look inside yourself and say, what do I feel my motives are? 
that's hopeless. Your mind is way too good at, at fooling you. Look away from yourself, far away from yourself at other people and ask what explains what they do. Now, uh, what are rationalizations and what is your research on rationalizations led you to conclude? Well, uh, a rationalization is an explanation. It's a story about what you're doing and why. You wouldn't call it a rationalization if you believed it. You would only call it a rationalization when you had a reason to doubt it. Mm -hmm. So uh, in some sense, you, you've already answered the question once you've called it a rationalization is that it's probably not true. <laughs> but if you just stand back and you say, well, what do people say they are doing and why? Most of what people say they are doing makes rough sense. Uh, so think about the excuse, the dog ate my homework. <laughs> it makes plausible sense because sometimes dogs do eat homework. We don't say the dragon ate my homework. Nobody's going to believe that. Nobody believes there are dragons who ate homework. But our lives are full of stories that roughly make sense, like the dog ate my homework. And, you know, they are exactly because we are trying to make sense. We are trying to tell stories that other people will believe about us. And so you can't just look at the surface of anyone's story and decide whether to believe it. That's not going to work because people are trying to tell you plausible stories. You're going to have to look at the larger patterns of behavior if you're going to see past the excuses people give. And uh, before I uh, shift things over to uh, Mr. Kaufman here, what are some daily examples? So we mentioned in the field of medicine, I don't go to the hospital or to doctor's offices that often. Are there uh, daily examples of when we come into contact with the elephant? Absolutely. So the key point is our book is structured where the first third tries to make it plausible that you might not know about your motives. But then the last two thirds goes through 10 different areas, one by one in detail, trying to convince you that in each area you're actually wrong about your motives. And in fact, that's really the only way to persuade you. There's no way to convince you in the abstract that you're wrong about things. You're just too convinced that you're not wrong. I have to walk through specific areas in some detail to convince you you're wrong. So our first chapter is about body language. Your body language tells many truths that you deny and that you won't admit, including the fact that you flirt with people and that you are not equal in status to your associates when you interact with them. We have a chapter on laughter that tells you that why you laugh and when you laugh doesn't fit the story you will give about why things are funny or when they're funny. We have a story on charity, on consumption, on politics, etc. And the key point is in each area, we have to walk through the details in order to convince you that in fact, you're not being entirely honest with your motives because your usual story is intended to make enough sense that you can get away with it usually. And you do get away with it usually because you're usually not being probed to the level we're going to probe and push here. And again, we're not going to probe on you and your personal history in the last hour. You're, you've got that covered and pretty well protected. We're going to look at the average of human behavior, and that's where you're going to be exposed because you've been trying to hide behind the average, and the average doesn't fit. Mm. Mr. Kaufman, take it away. Uh, well, I, I asked you um, how you came to discover some of these things. And you said that you were in in uh, embedded in these like systems and and things didn't make sense to you, um, but this isn't true of a lot of people. A lot of people do just uh, go along with it. It makes sense to them for the reasons that you point out in your book, right? So there kind of had to be something a little right. bit different. You, you have to be looking at the patterns of behavior and trying to explain that. Most people don't look at the patterns of medicine and notice the fact that in fact there's little correlation between health and medicine. 
Most people haven't noticed that fact because the correlation between health and medicine isn't a primary factor that stands out in their life. Most people don't notice that we spend a lot more effort paying attention to medicine, which has a lot lower connection to health than we do to things that seem to have much stronger connections like nutrition, sleep, air quality, exercise. Most people don't notice that they don't pay very much attention to those other things. Have you have you ever taken those ideas about what medicine is actually about and spoken to them, say, in a room full of doctors? I don't get invited to rooms full of doctors. <laughs> <laughs> How? Well, it's not for a long time. So, uh, but I'm, I, I'm pretty confident. You know, I'm going to see the same reaction I get from everyone. <laughs> so, you know, most everybody is actually pretty defensive about medicine. Medicine is one of the sacred areas in our world. Uh, if we were talking to ordinary people, I don't know, in Africa 400 years ago, we might not get as much pushback. But in our world today, medicine is relatively sacred. And so even most people of a certain age have a story about some relative who would have been dead if not for modern medicine. And so How about, people are really tied into that. Yeah. But there are probably some doctors you've introduced these ideas to and they've found them oh, interesting. Oh, sure. I mean, if you get them one by one, that's a whole different story. The same for teachers even, for example. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, If you but, get people collectively defending their profession as a group, then they all will viciously defend their profession. But if you talk to them privately one by one, most doctors will admit that most of what they do doesn't really make much of a difference. Uh, I suppose there's so a question. So will most teachers. Yeah. There's probably a question there of, of which version of those two people we're supposed to believe is the real one. Of course, but we <laughs> shouldn't necessarily believe either of them. We should look at the larger patterns of behavior and try to draw a conclusion from that. Yes. Okay. I, I guess I, to, to ask the question even more directly, like, do you think there are any psychological differences in the, in the sort of like archetypes or makeups of people that are interested in asking these questions, looking at things in the way that, that you do, more receptive to these types of ideas, et, et cetera? I'd say everybody has some sacred cows. It's just a matter of which are your sacred, sacred cows. Some people, medicine is one of their sacred cows. For other people, religion is a sacred cow. For some people, politics is a sacred cow. For some people, being an academic or an intellectual is a sacred cow. So if you start to you know, criticize their sacred cow, you say, well, that's not what it seems to be, and that actually isn't as useful as it claims, then people are much more defensive. If you attack other people's sacred cows, most people are actually pretty willing to go along. What do you, what do you think are the biggest implications for actual behavior in terms of awareness of some of these ideas? Are there things that you changed in your life or that you think it makes sense for people to look at and look differently at? So let's say straight out, our book is not intended not. primarily as self-help. I, I we know. We do not I, recommend it as self-help. It wasn't designed to be self-help. Our book is intended primarily as a way for people to understand the larger world, especially social scientists and policymakers. Those are the people we most want to persuade of a different view of how the world works. Okay, but all right, but Robin, right? I've read this book, and now I know all of these things, and now you've moved on to grabby aliens, and it's like, what am I supposed to do? I mean, like, no, I'm not, I'm not trying to be. I'm not trying. I'm just a. But you know, you're supposed to give up. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't. Black you're supposed them. to realize that. You were built this way, and you are not through some short-term force of will going to 
remake human nature inside yourself of to course, be the course. nature that you wish it would be. Yes. You are yes. built to be hypocritical. Nature made you this way. It's enforced that and built enormous, sophisticated technologies and abilities inside yourself to support this hypocrisy. And that's who you are. And that's who you're going to continue to be, largely regardless of how well you attempt to reform. <laughs> I I agree with that. That's not, that's not necessary. I guess that's... Maybe that's not what I'm asking, or uh, like, um, like I do think your work and the implications of it give have uh, there are implications in terms of I don't know like how we think how if I'm interested in political persuasion you know how I how I I think about that I think it has changed the way that I think about uh, medicine. Right. And whether or not you know, there are ways and I'm not I understand it's not right. self-help, but I'm not trying to put you in the position of like giving advice to people you don't feel comfortable giving. But like there are implications. It's not just right. about so the, just the key implications are that most of the areas of life where you get hot and bothered and you get irate and self indignant and, you know, declare that the world is just not just in the way you think it should be. If you think about it from this point of view, you realized, oh, you don't have to worry about them as much as you thought. They, they don't matter as much as you thought. Nobody's learning that much in school, so don't worry if your kid's not learning that much in school. Mm -hmm. People don't get well when they go to the doctor, so don't worry if you're not getting well when you go to the doctor. <laughs> People don't make the world better in politics, so don't worry so much if you're not making the world better in politics. Yeah. Once you see the average and the standard and what people are doing, you can back off and not be so anxious about what you're not doing either. Fair, fair. All right, very good. I, li I like that. Um, has, has anyone, uh, or have you ever thought about that? There's almost, uh, like, um, you know, postmodern nature of your work where you've sort of rationally, uh, encouraging skepticism of rationality, like almost, almost proving the ways that we believe certain things like are incredibly subjective and driven by all these other factors. Well, in some sense, you know, a, a postmodern story would be trying to cover this up and excuse it in some other clever and, you know, vague way. And that's not going to work here if we keep our eye on the ball. We're going to say, no, 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 don't, don't try to excuse this. You are, you are guilty as much as the rest of us. And don't play this postmodern game, you know, just own up to the very basics here. You are being selfish and you are not actually being as helpful as you pretend. And if you want to be more helpful, we're going to have to go back more to basics and uh, not wave our hands at some all the vagueness and subjectiveness of all of it all. That's just not going to cut it here. I have I have some more questions, but not in the space of signaling an elephant in the brain. I'm happy to go wherever you guys like. <laughs> just just before we get there, I I got a few more for you. My my favorite study in the book was where uh, they had shown two pictures of women to guys and said, which one's better looking? And the guy would choose it. Then then the guy would uh, cl close away the pictures and say, that's really interesting. Now, why did you choose this woman? And then he would show a the other woman. And then people would justify a, uh, an answer they never even gave. That, to me, was so mind-blowing. I looked it up and then saw the video and almost started. It, that's just very depressing. What was the, your favorite study or example that you came across in doing your research for the elephant in the brain, hidden motives in everyday life? I don't think I had a favorite study. The <laughs> studies were not the thing that focused my attention. Uh, I was more struck just by the large scale of the deception and the, and the way we have to change our minds. So 
from the point of view of, say, even a postmodern worldview, I think one of the most dramatic and appealing, perhaps, or dramatic at least parts of a postmodern worldview is the idea that you have to radically rechange how you think about the world. Mm-hmm. And I thought I had done that a couple of times when I was young. I learned relativity, and I learned quantum mechanics, and I learned a lot of relatively dramatic ways to reconceive the world. And I thought I was done with that. I thought, surely, you know, being a sophisticated economist and understanding the nature of politics and these other things, I could no longer be shocked at the the level at which I had misunderstood things. And it just wasn't true. The world really was shockingly different than I had assumed late into my career, late into my, uh, you know, years of trying to understand it and change my mind. That, in some sense, was the most striking feature of this whole point of view is to say, you can be this wrong at things that are this basic in ways that are this easy to explain. That should shock you. How could you have gotten it that wrong? That's incredible. If I want to make sure, uh, so some of the... um... Uh, the chapters refer to art, consumption, politics, religion. If I want to do my best to make sure I am uh, engaged in rational thought and justified behavior, is there a way I can diminish my bias and make sure I'm doing things rationally as opposed to just being a slave to the elephant? Easy way that you may not like. Have fewer opinions. Okay. Look, the, the simple fact is when you realize you were wrong about big things, the simple retreat is to stop having so many opinions. Stop thinking you know so much. Back off and say, okay, I'm wrong about a lot of stuff. I don't know a lot of stuff. I'm going to have fewer opinions. I'm going to ask, what opinions do I need? When do I actually have the basis to try form a judgment? And the simple, easiest way to be rational is just to back off and stop thinking you know so much. But of course, that's not very appealing. Most of the people who would ask this question is because they like to talk. They like to stand in a conversation and a group of people at a party and pontificate. They love that. They love to feel like they know things and to talk about the things they know. And what they really want is a new thing to say in those speeches. (laughs) Not to be told to shut up and stop pretending you know things. Well, I will say you can just take the advice in the other direction and now it's just justified, right? Because, oh, it's just my human nature. And, you know, just accept the fact that uh, <laughs> that you enjoy doing it with full self-awareness of it being unhealthy uh, epistemology. Sure, as long as you're aware that you're bullshitting <laughs> and you don't actually know what, what, what you're saying is true, then that's at least some step toward honesty. <laughs> So uh, that is how we can maybe humble ourselves and possibly uh, have less opinions for ourselves. Do you have any advice on how to change someone else's mind? Well, don't. (laughs) They are really well defended. People are not set up to make it easy for you to change their mind. Don't presume they are. Don't presume that like a rational argument or you know clear evidence is going to change their mind. They're, that's not the way we're built. That's not the way you're built. Um, just that's not set up to be easy, and you shouldn't expect it to be. Um, and maybe you should just try to like make the world better without forcing people to change their mind. People get their pride tied up in with whatever thing they've said. They don't want to publicly admit they're wrong, and maybe you shouldn't even be trying so hard to make them publicly admit they're wrong. Why don't you just try to figure out how 
if we did something different, it would be better and let people believe whatever excuses they want to believe about why they're doing it, as long as you can get them to do the better thing. Got it. That is all I got on the elephant in the brain. Mr. Kaufman, take it away. Uh, so you have so many uh, ideas, but one that I uh, am especially interested in is uh, uh, prediction markets and futarchy. Yeah. I was wondering if you could just introduce those concepts a little bit for people who might not be familiar. Absolutely. So uh, we all form collective opinions in many ways, and we use those collective opinions as the basis for policy and collective action and, and organizational action. And it long seemed, has seemed to many that the process by which we form these collective opinions is broken and often error prone. And if only we could produce some better process for forming our collective opinions, then we could be better informed about many important things, including medicine, education, politics, etc. Now, it seems that in general, this is this deep, difficult subject of which you know, philosophers and wise people have long pontificated, and therefore it would be intractable and you couldn't actually make much progress. That would seem like a reasonable assumption to make from a distance, but it turns out it's not true. It turns out there's actually a pretty easy way to improve our collective estimates on topics, and that's just to set up a betting market and believe the odds. Setting up a betting market and believing the odds is a remarkably cost-effective, efficient, fast, subtle and uh, inexpensive way that we can all just believe the truth. And it works in a very wide range of contexts and it's a powerful method. And you might then say, wow, this the problem of the agents has been solved. We now know how we should all come together to decide what to believe what's true. All we need to do is pass the word and pretty soon we'll be adopting these betting markets and then the world will be a so much better place. That's what you might think if you were someone who hadn't read the book, The Elephant in the Brain, <laughs> to people at their word about what they do and why. <laughs> and it was one of my lessons that, draw, that ta taught me the lessons of the book, that people are lying about what they're doing and why, because this was one of the early examples that told me that people say they want better ways to aggregate the truth together for, for estimating things, and they lie. They just do not want such things. <laughs> <laughs> and they will not take them if offered, and they will actively resist them uh, because they do not want such things. So I'm I'm generally a, a a believer in these ideas and a promoter of them. There is one criticism I've seen that the rebuttal of. Uh, I'd be curious to get to get yours while you're you're here. Um, so that, and there's an example of it the other day, which is maybe was, I don't know if this is real or not. I just saw a meme on Twitter, but that someone uh, took out a bet at the Super Bowl that that there would be a streaker, and then they streaked themselves, right? Okay. So they took yeah. out the big sure. bet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, that that prediction markets. If you're using prediction markets for at least at least if some kind of activity, say like uh, the the life of someone, or you know whether or not uh, a, right. a bad action would happen, even something like COVID deaths that you're now creating a market incentive to produce the outcome? Well, you can just generalize the observation you made. That is, when we ever give anybody incentives to be accurate in their predictions, we also give them incentives to cause their predictions to be accurate. That's just a general feature of the fact that you might give people incentives to try to be accurate in their predictions. It's not specific to prediction markets. 
it's general to the idea of giving people incentives for things. You know, for example, some people said if Trump were president, terrible things would follow as a consequence. And you know what? Some people were able to make sure some terrible things followed as a consequence, regardless of what other things would or would not have happened, right? Uh, it, it's just that it's, that had nothing to do with prediction market. That just has to do with trying to like go back and say, see, I was right. <laughs> Now, generically, we have solutions to this, which is to try to focus on predictions that are harder to influence. Uh, so, for example, if you have a prediction about a deadline, you, you might create the problem that uh, someone will say, oh, we won't make that deadline, and then they will cause the deadline to fail in order to you know, show their prediction. Now, in a prediction market, a nice thing to do about that is to make sure everybody associated with the project has a positive stake. So if you give everybody $100 if the project succeeds, and now you let them bet that $100 up to 200, down to 50, but not below zero, you've made sure everyone maintains a positive interest in having the project succeed, but now they can reveal their information in the differences, how they move from 100 up to 500, you know, to 200 or down to 50, and those differences are where they'd express their beliefs. So. Uh, once you realize this problem of incentives is potentially a problem, there are ways to deal with it. But again, the, the general phenomena here is, you know, people say they want a way to aggregate beliefs. You give them this mechanism and they go, oh, uh, well, and then they look for some problems. <laughs> and then then you and you show them a solution to the problem. They go, oh, OK. And then they're not still not interested in, in, the, in the solution. So often what you find is that when people point out problems with some solution, it's because they don't want to do the solution. It's not that if you show them there is a solution to the problem they point out, they will change their mind and do it. <laughs> they will still just look for more problems. Well, I mean, this goes back to uh, one of the ways I, I became familiar with this idea is I want to say it was uh, Timothy May's uh, like crypto anarchy, where he talks about how uh, you know, you could have an an and a public anonymous insurance market is effectively equivalent to an assassination market. You know, if I can take out, if I can make a public prediction about um, someone dying within a, sp a specific narrow date range, you're effectively creating uh, an, an economic incentive for someone to 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 do that because they can take the other side and and then do it. That's of course long been an issue with insurance markets. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, one of yeah, the yeah, yeah, People yeah, initially yeah. opposed insurance. Insurance had a long time to get uh, adopted in the actual markets, exactly because initially people said, "Oh no, you wouldn't want to have insurance markets because then people would uh, kill people." And so well, I, yeah. <laughs> we, we actually took a long time to show people that that it really wasn't anywhere nearly as big a problem as people were worried about, and there were relatively straightforward ways to avoid it. Uh, yeah. Very good. I mean, hey, I'm in I'm in the middle of a of a project myself that makes uh, an economic claim essentially that's 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 counterintuitive. Uh, that was very controversial when we uh, when the when the public sort of became aware of it. So, uh, and, it and always the question is, do they actually want it? So <laughs> yeah. for, you know, a lot of businesses obviously flounder on the shoals of trying to offer a product to people that people have said they want. And you don't actually know if they really want the product that you offer until you actually offer it, because people lie about what they want. Uh, this may be too like uh, uh, real world level, but do you think there's a, a a path to legal prediction markets in the U.S. or anywhere? The actual main path toward more use of prediction markets in the U.S. is not one blocked by legalities. <laughs> You know, what we mainly need are internal organizational markets 
where, say, an organization pays its employees and associates in order to participate in a market on a deadline or something like that. And if the organization pays for the for market participants, then it's not illegal. There is not a legal barrier there. And in fact, organizations can and have done that legally. And the main obstacle is local politics. It is politically disruptive to create these markets because the markets are out of control. The markets do not say what they are supposed to say. They say whatever they want to say. And that's generically a problem in local politics. So most most C-level uh, suite participants are savvy enough to know when somebody's ox is being bored and they may choose to con contradict someone, but they will do so intentionally and on purpose, but they usually know when to shut up and when to pretend like somebody, the whatever the conventional wisdom is, is that's believed is true. So a prediction market is this problematic C-suite executive who knows a lot about domain areas, but does not know when to shut up and does not know when somebody's ox is being gored and when somebody is uh, you know, going to take offense. And that's the key problem, is that they are not politically savvy as actors at the high levels. But they are legal. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, do you, Keith, do you have any questions in this, in this area? Not necessarily uh, there. I am curious, Jeremy, you had something on signaling you wanted to get into. Was there an, anything else in that area? Uh, the signaling, I think, was all covered under under elephant and the brain. Excellent. Um, I am curious, uh, Mr. Hansen, uh, what is economics? I'm curious how you would define it. I am a scholar or intellectual, and I have at times had to define myself as some particular kind of scholar or intellectual because the world of scholars and intellectuals is divided up into territory <laughs> and you have to show your allegiance to one part of the territory in order to get any resources or support from that part of the territory. So at a fundamental level, economics is another word for one of those territorial markers where some people will need you to pledge allegiance to being on one side of the line if they're going to give you some support. That's functionally what these words in these categories actually mean. And you know, I've played that game and I do as I need to, but fundamentally I'd rather just be a scholar looking around for what the interesting questions are and going wherever the questions and the data are about them. So in that sense, I'm not that interested in whether I'm an economist or whether what I'm doing is economics. I'm interested in, is it an interesting question? Is it useful? Uh, can I say something insightful about it? Uh, what? What are uh, some of the most interesting uh, questions you have come across in your life as an intellectual? It turns out that if you just ask what are the most interesting questions there are, it's really not that hard to identify them. <laughs> the remarkable fact is if you take most scholars and you say, why are you studying that and why is it interesting? They typically struggle <laughs> to come up with a story about why what they're doing is particularly interesting. <laughs> but it's relatively easy to just sit down and talk about, well, what things are interesting, you know? Let, let, let's go to some basic things about humanity, okay? Like, we live and we die. We care a lot about whether we live and we die. We, we, we start young and then we get old. And interestingly, everybody seems to have to relearn most of the same things all through their lifetime. It's very hard for old people to teach young people the things they've learned in their lifetime. Why is that so hard? Why? Because, you know, we are over and over again, generation after generation, relearning most of the same stuff that our ancestors knew. 
that seems tragic and important to understand. Why, you know, do we divide up the way we do into all these different subgroups that we fight among each other? Why these subgroups? Why not other subgroups? Why do we even care so much about them? Uh, you know, there's lots of very basic things that we could have learned far earlier in, you know, we now know vast, subtle things about physics in the universe that our distant ancestors couldn't possibly have even understood the questions to. Yet, very basic questions about social science and human relationships, <laughs> which we've known about the questions for millennia, somehow we still struggle over their answers and struggle to even accept basic data about them. Why won't we face the most basic questions about people and our relationship to each other? You know. I hope you, it's obvious why these questions are interesting. I hope it's obvious why these questions would matter. And most ordinary people can relatively easily tell what seems an interesting question from what seems a weird, obscure, and hard to understand why that would be an interesting question. And most academics run away from the questions that would seem interesting to ordinary people exactly because their main priority is to show that they are different. <laughs> They are trying to show that they are not just an ordinary person thinking about something. They are special. They have some special tools and methods and ways of thinking, and that's why they deserve their funding and, and distinguished roles. What are uh, some of your favorite books you have uh, ever read? Unfortunately, I think what books you like when in your life is a relatively personal thing and it says much more about you and what you knew at that time <laughs> and what you had been exposed to than it does say in general about books i know people like to play the game of like you know favorite books and exchanging them and there are definitely some books that are better than others but you know for example look war and peace is my favorite novel is that absolutely the best novel ever probably not but you know at a particular time in my life it charmed me by the fact basically that the author wouldn't hide his theories. He, the author mm -hmm. would say directly, here's my theory about how these characters are interacting and what mode drives them. And then he will describe those characters doing things. And then he will again go back to his theory and he lets you compare these things to each other, which most authors don't let you do. They make you try to infer their theory of the characters from what they've said, but they are pretty you know, evasive about telling you directly. All right, so War and Peace, favorite fiction. What about your favorite nonfiction? So those are going to be things that at a particular point in my life that were a revelation to me. So, for example, Geoffrey Miller's The Mating Mind was a revelation to me at a particular point in my life, but I don't know that it is, you know, in some absolute thing. Herbert Simon's Sciences of the Artificial, uh, you know, that was an insight to me at a particular point in my life. I understood that. Um, but, you know, over time... The more you know, the less that any one book can really shock you and show you a lot of things because you've learned a lot. And that's not the fault of the book so much as, as what you've learned. I'll, I'll admit, as uh, I've been reading your blog for uh, a long time, uh, and uh, your book came out, and I was really, uh, Elephant in the Brain, I was really excited. Then I kind of felt like, oh, like Robin taught me these things actually over the last, <laughs> the last five years already. Uh, but it's 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 uh, really a fantastic work for for anyone that's uh, not new to these ideas. I had some other questions about just sort of, sort of things that I've seen you talk about it at at different times. I could just like hop around a little bit, Keith. Yes, please. Yeah. Uh, you can uh, take it from here. So, uh, one of the things that you've talked about uh, with Futarchy almost being a subset of is 
societal experimentation, this idea that there's very little interest in like trying to find uh, potentially different or better ways um, uh, in terms of how yes. society could work. Yeah. <laughs> Amazingly, in contrast to how much people pretend to care about politics and progress and, you know, making the world better. So people will stand at a party and pontificate for hours about how important it is that we come up with better institutions or better ways of doing things in society, but they will not spend an hour back at the office actually trying something out. Uh, there's, you know, so in with Futarchy and prediction markets, their main limitation is just, we need more small organizational scale experiments with them. That it's not a legal barrier, it's not a technology barrier. It's just, we need more small scale experimentation. And lots and lots of people will say, oh, wouldn't it be better if we had more important political institutions and more important institutions for medicine and everything else? And in that, <laughs> but nevertheless, they won't actually go try things out, which is the thing we actually need. And so there's just this disconnect between grand talk about what the world needs and people's willingness themselves in their immediate world to actually do simple, concrete things that would contribute. <laughs> uh, that's very true. Uh, I'm a, I'm a part of uh, an organization that's actually uh, trying to do things in that in that uh, space. Uh, it's an organization called the the Free State Project, uh, which is trying to to concentrate libertarians and create a, a sort of radically libertarian space uh, um, in, in the state of New Hampshire. Uh, but most people, it's it's something that you know, I, it's something that I puzzled actually for a long time. Your work was was helped. Uh, me find the answers to, you know, why did we spend so much time in our politics thinking about, um, you know, like, like I always thought, you know, there's so much space in America. People have all these different opinions. Like, why aren't we thinking about problems in the way of like, well, how do we just satisfy more people? How do we just give more people what they purportedly want? Um, and of course, the it's the hidden motives answer as to, as to why we do this. I think. I, you know, I'd still say, you know, the lack of uh, challenge trials with respect to this pandemic or other medical things is still this gaping hole. The Free State Project or any small place in the world could have allowed small-scale experimentation with uh, variolation and other sorts of small treatment, and no one in the world did. That's the striking thing. In the entire world of people pointing at everyone else and saying we need more experimentation and innovation, no one anywhere said 100 people are allowed to try this uh, if they sign a line and let that happen. Nowhere, not in the free state, not in the U.S., not in North Korea, not anywhere. Uh, of course. Yeah, no, we don't. Uh, we're not we're not claiming we've succeeded in our objectives. Uh, but it, it, I, I completely agree with you. And you and you when you introduce the, the concept uh, of even proposing it, some people would say you're, you know, some kind of moral monster. And so the striking thing is that we live in a world with many different nations that apparently is an anarchy at the global level, which would apparently allow a lot of experimentation across the globe. And it's just not true. We live in somewhat of a global hegemony where there is a dominant ethical class with a dominant ethical powers everywhere in the world. Even North Korea is not willing to... <laughs> deviate from the ethical consensus that no one should be allowed to do challenge trials. What, what do you think is there, not to challenge trials specifically, but to just that, that hegemony more generally, do you have any thoughts around the, any Absolutely. kind of path? Yeah, <laughs> go, go. Of course, I, I'd say what, what actually happens is we have 
culture and we have an elite class. So in most every human society ever, what actually happened was that there was some class of people who were seen as the elites, who talked to each other a lot, who gossiped, and then they, whatever their opinion was, went. <laughs> the elite gossipers, what opinion they form about whatever the issues of the day were, were an opinion that other people dare not oppose. And if, they, if the elites formed an opinion about what people should or shouldn't do, and they ever saw anybody doing something different, then they would viciously and fiercely point it out to them and have them be dragged up for, you know, disapproval by everyone else because, look, we decided X was the right thing and they did Y instead. That's true in not only in any little local culture, that's true in the world today. There is, in fact, a worldwide elite that talks a lot to each other, that decides what is going to be okay in the world today, and it runs the world. Do not to deviate anywhere in the world for what this elite culture decides about what's okay to do in the world. And people are really find it hard to believe this or even admit it. I mean, people find it hard to admit that status exists. <laughs> Often you'll say, well, I'll define that. It sounds vague. But, you know, social status is a real thing. And the key point is we rank people by status. And there are people who rank high and they are the elites. And they get to be elites by many different criteria. They could be celebrities, they could be actors, they could be beautiful, they could be athletes, they could be rich, they could be uh, an author, whatever. But they get put into the elite class and then those people sit on panels at Davos and discuss things together. And when they all nod and say, yes, that's right, then that's the rule. But to, to be clear, you're not alleging like uh... – any specific coordination, more like a school of fish kind of concept. Exactly. That is, they don't need to go behind the scenes with some sort of conspiracy of guns and <laughs> swords that enforce things. That we are all willing to go along with what they say because they are the elites. We just cave and do not oppose the elites are better people telling us what many people claim there are no elites and that we are egalitarian world and you know it's only their opinions that influence us through their evidence or something and that's just you know patently obviously wrong <laughs> have um are you familiar with the the martin sort of the martin gurry thesis uh, sure of course of, yeah how do what do you think it's uh, that that's it's, correct that the elites are so, losing power well it's, it's an insightful observation that there have been these groups that tried to have political causes and they are just more interested in LARPing and doing the sort of style of a protest than actually having political effects. There is just a decline in the last century, certainly in the last you know quarter century, in people being come, willing to come together into political organizations that they give political power to and that they defer to and are willing to accept the choices of relative to sort of very egalitarian political groups and protest movements where everybody has an apparently equal say and influence where therefore there is no center that can negotiate on their behalf. Therefore, they actually can't get very many things done. And, you know, certainly dramatically shown by the Hong Kong protests, which have basically completely lost. Why? Because they were not willing to put anybody in charge of those things. Mm. Jeremy, anything else you have for uh, Mr. Hansen? Um, I had, I, I guess I did. I don't. If you, if you don't want to uh, talk about this area, I'm totally fine. You've, you just in terms of some of the times that you've been uh, controversial in in the past. Anything that you would be willing to share about that 
experience. You know, you were got, I don't know, you, you right. didn't get canceled, but you were attacked a little Not bit. Not yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the most, I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy to just use this as an occasion to understand a, an area of human behavior. It, it, how it affects me is not especially interesting, but I, since I can see it up close, I can you know more clearly verify how things go. Gossip has been this ancient human thing. And when a world of gossip decides something and pushes for it, that's the mob. The mob is just the world of gossip. And when it decides things, and it's pretty clear that long ago, humans realized the mob was a pretty dangerous thing. And then we tried to substitute law instead of the mob. <laughs> and of course, most stories of the law and when it should be used are warn you that you must be careful not to allow the mob to substitute for the law. You need to make sure the law plays through it. And then you can say, well, what is in fact the difference between the law and the mob? And I'd say the key thing is that in the law, you pick some responsible par party or parties and you say to them, you do not decide until you've heard from everybody. You are not to form an immediate opinion on the first thing you hear. You are to withhold judgment until you've heard all the sides make their case. That's the essence of the law. And that's the thing that does not happen in mobs. <laughs> in the mob, your incentive is you hear an accusation against somebody. And if you're a good mobster, that's it. <laughs> somebody on your side made an accusation. There is no further thing to consider. <laughs> There is just, you know, joining the mob and, and gaining your side's, you know, justice. Um, and so in the mob, there's very little incentive to listen to both sides, to listen to all the different, you know, evidence that might be considered to sort of even ask in a relatively precise way, what is the accusation here? What would that mean? All of those things that nat come naturally to law don't happen in the mob. And you know, that's what makes the mob dangerous and problematic. Not that people don't, you know, have a sense of justice and, and get outraged and want to do something about it. It's that we all know that the incentive within an ordinary mob or gossip world of gossip is the person in front of you who's complaining about some third person, your immediate interest is to sympathize with them and agree with them. You know, somebody comes to you and A comes to you and complains about B. A, B is not in the room, A is in the room. You're listening to A. Well, of course, you sympathize with A. You accept A's point of view and you criticize B. And that's your main incentive is to be done with it and to, you know, draw the conclusion that A is presented to you about B and to not consider it further. And we all know at some level that that can go wrong. Sometimes A's accusations about B are not fair or not accurate. And so we create a legal process whereby somebody is tasked with being the focal person, we say, you will decide, you must listen to the evidence first. You must listen precisely to what is the accusation here to be clear about that and ask yourself, do you actually believe that accusation is true given all the things you've heard? People can be biased in that role. They can misjudge that role. They can just be ordinary person, but that is the difference between law and the mob. And that's what we lack when recently we empower these mobs. They don't actually need much of a consistency or coherence or logic to you know whatever the accusation is and nobody asks it of them once you say ah there's a mob and if you oppose the mob the mob will come on you then the equilibrium is everybody must do whatever the mob says and therefore anybody in the mob is empowered to pick anybody they don't like and accuse them and you know go with it that way and of course that's what we saw in say the chinese cultural revolution or the stalin 
era of Stalinist, you know, repression and thing. Basically, in a world where the mobs have these power, people use the mobs to get rid of their rivals. Interesting. Yeah. There is a uh, philosophical concept that w I was introduced to by Michael Humer at University of Boulder, Colorado. It's the concept of how is it that, you know, a large group of people, 330 million Americans, obey the rules and edicts of 535 people in Congress, even though they're widely referred to as liars and self-interested people who we more or less hate, they still feel this obligation to obey them because of this sort of social status. How is it that people have been convinced, uh, or how is it that some people are able to get such a distribution of social status that's so disproportionate and still effective even when you hate the people who are uh, at that level social status exists it is powerful and people complain about it but they don't mean it <laughs> people actually crave not only status but any affiliation with other people who have status just, you know, look outside of a sports stadium at the people who will crave any sort of appearance or wave from the people, the stars who are walking out of the stadium into their locker rooms or whatever, uh, you know, or at any music concert or anything like that. You will see how much people literally crave in the deepest part of their soul any sort of connection with high status people. They want that connection and they are very willing to defer to high status people if that will in any way give them any appearance of status. People pretend like they oppose this somehow and they just don't. This is, you know, one of the elephants in the brain, one of the obvious things that we just lie about. We accept elitism. We accept that there are these elites far above the rest of us. We crave any association with them. We are happy to go to a panel talk where they're sitting on the stage gossiping with each other about things as long as we can seem to be in the room and, and be part of the same group. Uh, that's just who we are. If, if people like your ideas, where should they hang out? Well, you apparently say that sometimes you could read my blog and you'll get a taste of these things and there's many archives there. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm easy to find, Robin Hansen. And if you Google the name, you'll find my websites and things like that. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. The book is The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. With my excellent co-author, Kevin Simler, who we have not mentioned, but uh, I was very glad to have as a co-author on this book. Kevin Simler, yes, apologies to Mr. Simler. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, so much for your time. It has been a pleasure. And thank you to everyone for watching Keith Knight. Don't tread on anyone. <laughs>